0: i'm rebecca and i'm a pearl slash moody hi i'm carolyn and i guess i'm a pearl
1: i'm Teresa, and i'm definitely a moody and before we jump into the recap of this week's episode of little fires everywhere the show we're tackling now um let's talk a little bit about why we decided to do this show i'll start since i instigated the whole thing um you know, obviously, we started talking about Big Little Big Little Lies last year, and when we saw, when I saw that Reese Witherspoon was turning, well, I should say Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington are turning um, Little Fires Everywhere into a, another little mini series. I was so excited because I listened to this book probably about a year or so ago. I really loved it, and then I started dragging you guys into it. So, why did you think this was a good fit for Big Little Podcast?
0: Well, I hadn't read the book until you brought it up to us that we were thinking about doing this, though I had heard a lot of buzz surrounding the novel, Little Fires Everywhere. Um, So I was quite keen just based on what I'd heard about the book, read the book in what felt like 24 hours. It probably took me two and uh, thought that the source material was perfect for what we'd done with Big Little Lies there's a lot of similar themes it deals with families and complicated dynamics and an outsider coming into a community that's very defined so I thought it really paired well with what we've worked on before and obviously Queen Reese is in it so I figured continuity it works why not
1: (laughs) and Carolyn you actually haven't read the book so why did you agree to do this
2: Well, I am abstaining from reading the book so that Mm -hmm. I can offer that objective opinion (laughs) of the viewer who stumbles into this show because it is clearly marketed to Big Little Lies fans is how Mm -hmm. I saw this. I definitely think that this is uh, a show that is kind of that uh, like Netflix, like, oh, since you watched this, I mean, it's on Hulu, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they say like, because you watch this, here's this. Uh, uh, so I think that that is what this show, um, is definitely being presented as. And, um, so I thought it seemed like a perfect, a perfect fit. Um, also in all the trailers that I was seeing, it seemed like Reese Witherspoon was a Madeline Martha McKenzie-esque character. So that kind of made me raise an eyebrow at that situation, wondering, um, you know, how this was going to be different.
1: Yeah. So I also it also just dawned on me that we should probably do a bit of a um, announcement that we're all self quarantined at home, sitting in our closets and various other strange places places and drinking before noon. Um, while recording this so um you know for everybody else
0: 59 okay it's pretty close to noon.
2: yeah the other morning my roommate i we had just woken up and he shouts me from the other room to google recipes for my ties it was 11 a.m day four of quarantine it's Mm -hmm. not a problem if it's
0: after 10 everybody knows that okay
1: yeah
2: yeah
0: um
1: Yeah, so if you're sitting at home um, looking for something to do and just listening to us, you should also go out and get a Mai Tai or I've got a um, jacked up mimosa because I don't actually have champagne, but I have a ton of white wine. So I just poured some orange juice into it and called it a day. (laughs)
0: Love that. Um,
1: So Rebecca, do you want to start us off with recap of episode one, The Spark? The sparks,
0: sure. All right, so we open on a suburban house on fire and a lone figure bereft in a dressing gown witnessing the blaze from the edge of a neatly manicured lawn. The figure turns out to be Reese Witherspoon, lip a quiver. We jump ahead a few hours and the fiery McMansion now resembles the smoldering wastes of Harrenhal. And yes, that is a very, very deep and obscure Game of Thrones reference. (laughs) In the distance, Pacey, whose name I still don't know, and I will call him Pacey until I find out, speaks to two cops. A police officer explains there was an accelerant used, and the officer says, and I could you not, one minute and 27 seconds into the episode, there were little fires everywhere. Izzy emerges as a suspect here. Um, Izzy turns out to be the youngest of the four Richardson children, um, as speculated by her siblings in the car. Pacey, uh, though, insists to the police that she had nothing to do with the little fires everywhere. But before we can learn more, we get the credits which are a direct ripoff of the Good Fights opening credits, and I'm very mad about it. But we can talk about that later. (laughs) Now we're jumping back in time to August 1997. The birds are chirping, the sun is shining, and the McMansion is restored to all of its hellish former glory. Inside, Elena Richardson gives us a portrait of a very organized woman. She gets up early, works out, makes breakfast, and gets her four blonde kids out the door with only a little bit of attention from the youngest, Izzy. On her way to work, Elena notices a woman sleeping in a beat-up car and promptly reports it to the police. We then meet Mia Warren and her daughter, Pearl, as the police roll up following Elena's call. Elena plays, uh, Mia plays it cool and they drive off unscathed, but it is definitely a tense moment. In what I can only describe as a literary twist, it turns out that Mia and Pearl are inquiring about the second floor of a duplex that Elena rents. As Elena shows them around, she explains the principles of organization underpinning Shaker, including a mandated grass height and duplex illusions to combat the ever rampant stigma of renting. Mia is rightly hesitant to rent from the eager and unnerving Elena, but Pearl is sold the second she susses out the possibility of her own bedroom and an aesthetically appealing sunroom for her mother's high-concept art. When Elena realizes the Warrens are attached to the derelict car she reported earlier, she experiences a rush of white guilt and quickly offers the Warrens a deal they can't refuse. That night at family dinner, Elena prides herself on a good deed done, but because it's 1997 and this is a white family from Ohio, there's a stilted conversation about whether Mia is African American or black, punctuated by the precocious Izzy wondering why Mia's race even matters in the first place. Elena and Pacey retire to the bedroom set boudoir and Pacey begins to make overtures but wait, no sex for Pacey tonight because it is not Wednesday or Saturday. Desperate, Pacey reminds Elena that they can have sex if they don't plan it, but Elena counters it's so much better planned because apparently in Shaker, organization is also a kink. Mia and Pearl share a more wholesome moment as they fall asleep, reminiscing about knocking out I love you on a partition on their once separated bedrooms, which is giving us all sorts of shades of Jane and Ziggy, and it's heartbreaking and tender and a really nice counterpart to that high-gloss sitcom dynamic we see with the Richardsons. Then we get another, like, Mia flashback, big lifestyle. She's on a train, a man is making her nervous, that man happens to be Jackson Avery of Grey's Anatomy, and he's very hot but staring a little too intensely at Mia. The next day, the inexplicably named Moody Richardson bikes while Pearl prances among skeletons of a bed frame. Mia takes pictures. It's all very idyllic and artsy when Moody rolls up. Moody is adorably awkward, and he and Pearl become fast friends, as evidenced by a montage set to Counting Crows. In case you had forgot, this is 1997. As Moody and Pearl paint a single wall of her bedroom with a free sample size of paint, they exchange important backstory. Elena works for the smaller of two newspapers in town, but could have worked for the bigger one if she would not gotten pregnant with Izzy. And we learn that Mia and Pearl move a, lot, move a lot, allegedly for art reasons. Meanwhile, Elena is going about her morning, dropping off Izzy at school, crushing her self-esteem in the process, then chit-chatting about her friend about their latest book club book club pick, whoo, the vagina monologues, or as Elena would prefer to call it, the Virginia monologues. Later, Izzy rebels against Elena by burning off a big chunk of her best feature, a.k.a. her hair. Elena tries to fix it at the salon by suggesting Izzy get a Rachel from Friends cut, but Izzy insists on Drew Barrymore for reasons mostly pertaining to cocaine. Outside the salon, (laughs) Elena runs into Mia. Elena notices Mia is working at the local Chinese restaurant and awkwardly offers her a job as a maid or a housekeeper or a house manager, and it's all very bad, and as Elena worries to Pacey later, rather racist. Pacey doesn't care, he just wants to bone, but alas, it's Thursday, and poor Pacey is out of luck. Moody invites Pearl over, and we see the house through her eyes and all of its hellish McMansion glory. We get our first real introduction to the eldest Richardson kids, Trip and Lexi. Trip wears puka shell necklaces, Lexi wears a baby G watch and is going to Yale. Pearl says she doesn't know where she wants to college, but Lexi assures her she'll be a shoe in because of what? Affirmative action. When Moody groans, Lexi and Elena protest, it's cool because Lexi's got a boyfriend, and he happens to be African-American as well. Moody decides to escalate his friendship with Pearl very quickly and buys Pearl a bike in order to take her to his junkyard beatnik fort. He plays the guitar. She reads him a poem that she wrote that is as convincing as Chloe's taste in music. And on the other side of the culture spectrum, Izzy prepares for a performance at the Cleveland Youth Orchestra. Um, but right before she takes the stage, she runs into a girl in the bathroom who looks to be about 32, but is apparently one of Izzy's 14-year-old peers. Izzy wonders why they aren't friends, and this grown woman child responds by calling Izzy a freak. Izzy snaps, scrawls Not Your Puppet across her forehead in protest of the world, and then refuses to play her violin during the performance, and it's all pretty metal. Uh, the Neighborhood Watch ends up booting, busting Moody and Pearl, but Elena actively talks them out of it. Mia, however, is livid, which Elena doesn't seem to get. Mia and Pearl then have a tough conversation about how the Richardsons are different from them, and they will always have a riskier relationship uh, as two black women with the cops. Pearl accuses Mia of not putting her first, like Mrs. Richardson does, because the girl just wants to be able to paint her whole ass bedroom, which is fair. Uh, there's a lot of the obligatory yelling and door slamming, but later Mina, Mia knocks at I love you on Pearl's door, and eventually Pearl stops her furious journaling to knock back. Elena, however, is unable to break through to her child. She stands outside Izzy's bedroom just long enough for Izzy to notice her there before walking off. The next day, Pearl hangs out with Trip and, Liz, and, Trip and Lexi, and they watch the real world and discuss Pedro and the whole AIDS thing. Izzy spray paints her dresser on the lawn. Mia arrives to pick up Pearl, snaps a few pictures of Izzy, and then, recognizing a kindred spirit, tells her that the artists have to stick together. Izzy looks elated. Noticing the extent of the McMansion and Pearl amongst the Richardsons, Mia decides to accept Elena's offer and become their housekeeper, ostensibly to keep an eye on Pearl. In true Big Little Lies form, we end with a montage set to a thematic song, this time a haunting cover of Marcy Playground's Sex and Candy. And surprise, it's Saturday, which means Pacey finally gets to go to Poundtown. And by Poundtown, I mean reverse cowgirl. Mia has more nightmares. Izzy plays with fire. Elena gets a call from Mia's former landlord. And wait, he's never heard of a Mia Warren? Mia develops a photo of Elena and looks at it with lip-quivering rage and scene.
1: Well, that was a long one. There's a lot happening in this show. Um, I Really?
0: I had it originally at five pages, and I knocked it down to two and a half, and I still was like, I cut out like 50% of what happened.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Um, Well, it's good, because that way we don't have to recap too much when we talk about the many contradictions of Elena Richardson because i just do not know what to make of this chick um let's just recap a few of the things that happened here so she starts out by reporting people basically reporting a car to the police for no good reason then goes to work at as a journalist which for many reasons that i'll get into does not make any sense (laughs) then she then she practically gives the apartment away to mia even before she realizes that These are the people she just called the police on. You know, she's willing to, like, knock money off the... I mean, it's only $300, which even for the 90s seems crazy. For a two-bedroom apartment, that is beautiful. With a sun porch? Please. I know. Yeah. And and then she's like, oh, if you cut the grass, we'll knock off, like, 10% or something. And then... um, And really, they're just fighting about...
0: She originally wants them to sign a year lease, and she eventually, once she sees the car, she's like, You know what? We can do month to month when she experiences her white lady guilt. Yes. Which I think informs
1: a lot of her character. Fair. Yes. I think that's almost what this entire show is about, if not the book exactly. So then she also won't lay off poor Izzy, won't have sex with her husband on non non designated days. And the worst of all, this bitch measures herself four ounces of wine
2: every night. That to me was one of the most (laughs) disgusting parts of this character. I was like, bitch. I knew that would enrage you. Oh, my God. When she pours wine back into the bottle because she, like, over-poured, I was like, nope, this bitch and I are never friends. Yeah. This is not, this is not a person for me. Yeah. Um,
1: Madeline, Madeline Martha McKenzie would not approve of this chick. She is all about the wine all day, all the time.
2: No. And also the withholding sex thing is, mm-hmm. although, I mean, I can hey, get It's a that. kink, like, guys. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like, so I can I'm get I'm serious. Like, I'm ready to argue times, why this is a kink. yeah Yeah, I mean okay but I mean yes there are times where you're like no way like not tonight it's not happening like but I mean to have a schedule that I I, I mean unless that is like some sort of weird kinky thing to me that's like the least sexy like there is like nothing sexy about like planned set up sex night
1: well let's let Rebecca make her case for a (laughs) kinkier (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, great. Put me on the spot now. Um, no, I mean, uh, truly, I think from like a standpoint of once you've been married to someone for a very long time or in a long-term relationship, And you're hounded by them to have sex. And you're just like, no, man, I'm not into it right now. And then to just have like a designated day we you're like, okay, today's the pound town day. Like, I don't know. I feel like that. You kind of get yourself excited about it all day. Mm -hmm. And then all the other days you can be like, no. And it's a valid excuse. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's almost like being a dominatrix, right? Because she's
1: totally in control. She's like a total
2: control monster. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, and everything she does is motivated by control. Like she is a landlord who is controlling a mm-hmm. tenant. She is controlling who she puts in there. She is controlling what they do. I mean, yes, the city is or the town is controlling the grass. She controls
0: the media to some degree. I mean, right. this is She's a woman controlling who... the
2: media. She's controlling her kids, her husband's sex needs uh everything the authorities i mean, I mean, I mean she's got yeah. it seems like
0: she's got everybody in her back pocket from the neighborhood watch to the cops to the local government i mean this is a woman who's got madeline martha mackenzie's gift for gab and socialization and connectivity but with more of a seemingly sinister purpose well okay so i want to
1: everybody's had their chance to yell about kinks and wine so i want to talk about the fact that this bitch would never in her life be a journalist because
0: <laughs> let's talk because about it
1: When I graduated from college, I went to work at a tiny local newspaper, just like she works at. First of all, everyone who works at a small local newspaper and, you know, even a lot of the bigger dailies are slobs. Like, we don't get dressed. (laughs) Like, we, you know, everybody's, like, half drunk all the time. Like, there is no way this woman could be, like, a small town journalist. It just, and it pays nothing. She would never take this job. But then her relationship with the police, basically showing up and bribing them, like the police hate reporters. Like this is not how it goes. And even if they yeah. like you personally, they're still kind of a pain in the ass to you. Like I once, you know, just they the cops had made a big drug bust, and I just asked if there were any pictures. I think someone had like a, a was growing marijuana in their basement or something. This was so long ago that someone actually cared if anyone was growing marijuana in their basement i was gonna say who cares about that what year yeah, is this and, who and doesn't I grow am- marijuana in their basement <laughs> i know and so i was like do you have a picture and the police information officer was like no and then like two hours later one of the other cops showed up with a picture for me and was like i don't know what his problem is here's a picture we just blacked out the like there was an undercover cop involved so they had to black out his face they're like just don't take the dot off his face and i was like you're severely un- like overestimating our ability to manipulate photos here and it, like they just don't like they're just kind of assholes to you all the time. Like th- this well, is not did you how bake any of this cookies
2: works for them and put them in a pretty box with a bow.
1: No, I definitely did not because that is unethical and crazy. Um, oh, I blah, can't. Blah.
2: <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what she does in this show. And um, also, I think I caught a reference. Well, he's not a cop, but the, that town security guy that they went to high school together.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. you get the impression this is a very, very small town. I grew up in a town Incestuous. like this where everybody mm-hmm. yes. knows each other's business. Everybody's in each other's business. All of your neighbors are looking at you constantly. Everyone knows who's who, who's doing what. Everyone went to high school together, slept with each other way back when. So I, I get, I like that space. I think Monterey, in a way, felt that way, but also, mm-hmm. for some reason, wider Like, that world felt bigger, and this very much, there's a sense of claustrophobia permeating everything. I mean, this is as incestuous as a community can get.
1: So one of the questions I have here is, like, what are we supposed to make of this chick? And to me, I I think in the book as well as in the show, the thing you learn about Elena is that she just likes to follow rules. She likes order. That's why she likes to have sex on certain nights. That's why... You know, she doesn't know what to do with Izzy because Izzy doesn't want to be like everybody else. And, But then at the same time, we get this sense that she, at the very least, has a sort of liberal white guilt that, while annoying, is also... Is that a redeeming factor? Like, at least she's not a complete racist asshole. Like, what what are we supposed to make of this?
0: I mean, I think this is the most compelling part of the show and it's going to be the thing that's going to be most interesting for us as three white women to grapple with and that mm-hmm. is what is a well-intentioned white woman to do in situations because I mean so far we, you know we're talking just episode one here her behavior comes off as more like I'm doing this to make myself better not that I'm actually trying to have an impact on her life when she's at right. dinner with the family she goes oh it just feels so good to help a family in need that is the textbook definition of like no such thing as a selfless good deed She does Mm -hmm. this to feel better about herself. For what reason, you know, we'll find out or not. But I do think that it is less of an impulse to actually fix injustice and more of an impulse to make herself feel better about, you know, a system that is inherently racist, whether that is the police system or the system in the town. I mean, in episode two, we see her daughter Lexi running into some trouble with the school district. I mean, the whole structure of Shaker is not set up to be integrated, though they do want to say all the time, well, we were one of the first high schools to integrate, which is just a classic, you know, (laughs) white people retroactively feeling bad about things.
2: Well, on the flip side, and I know we're about to talk about Mia, but, like, I feel just as conflicted about Mia as a person. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I feel like in the first episode, you aren't really, you're just kind of given these little little glimpses of her and and a, like you know kind of these like flashback horror you know like she wakes up from these like nightmare flashbacks and everything so we're not really given enough to like develop who she is in this first episode mm-hmm. but what is really ruining it for me is Kerry Washington's like acting yeah. in which she looks <laughs> like there's something smelly on set the yes. whole time Mm -hmm. And that it is, like, unbearable and she can't breathe. And I am not sure how she landed on this choice as an actor.
1: Every time she speaks to someone, she looks like she thinks they're stupid and is speaking slowly to them so that they can understand her. Like Really? I I felt like like
2: she's looking, like she's trying not to throw up. Like she's talking slowly (laughs) and moving her mouth funny like somebody Mm who's about to just hurl all over the floor. And it's making (laughs) Mia a less... Uh, it, it Like, it's really blocking me, um, especially in this first episode. Mm-hmm. It completely blocked me from wanting to latch on to her as a character at all. And it's not even until, like, the very end of episode two where I even start to kind of come around to her. And I... So episode one and episode two were directed by different directors, I noticed, mm-hmm. in the credits. Um, I don't know... If that is going to continue, I have to, you know, I want to look that up and keep track of that. But I don't know what this performance that Carrie Washington is giving for this. And I don't know if it was, and I I didn't read the book, so I don't really have a grasp on the Mia character yet. Mm -hmm. But I cannot, I I just cannot find her at all likable or I can't invest in her. Yeah. That stank face.
1: In my notes, I wrote, is she just an angsty artist, a black woman fed up with these stupid white people shit, or just kind of bitchy? Like, you never really know, like, but see, there's there's not I enough like nuance.
0: I, I yeah. think the fact that we can't say for sure... Which one of those things? And they can both be true. I mean, she can be fed up with people's nonsense and be an angsty artist and be kind of a bitch. I mean, I, I, most artists yeah. I know are kind of
2: like
0: that. <laughs> like, she honestly, I thought it was a pretty accurate portrayal of every artist I've ever met that's just kind of like aloof and over your shit and wants to see if that's to speak what slowly, she's trying.
2: To do, I almost feel like she's overacting. Maybe. In that I mean,
0: Carrie Washington has certainly been accused of overacting before. This is not gonna be the first or the yeah. last time that happens. Yeah. But I do think that's more where this is coming from. Is she is really trying to channel that. I mean, who amongst us hasn't met somebody like that who thinks they're smarter than you and, and talks slowly and like, oh, well, you wouldn't have ever heard of Rimbaud, have you, or something? I don't, I mean, yeah. I went to got a master's in literature and it was a nightmare for that. It was just constantly being told you were an ignorant moron. And I do think there's a certain temperament. And that's kind of what she was giving me. And I didn't find it that it alienated me. If anything, I was like, okay, I, I want to know how she got to this place. Like, who hurt you, boo? Like, I want to know. There's,
1: it, you know, I also think there's a little bit of problem with the writing here because oh, I think yeah. Can poor, we talk about poor that? <laughs> Kerry okay. Washington is just given, like, garbage to work with for dialogue a lot, including this is, I don't know why this enraged me so, but there's a part where, you know, Elena is asking Mia if Pearl can stay over for dinner, and I don't know if you already had plans. And she says, "I don't plan; I just wing it. Usually with leftovers." And I'm like, "Then, bitch, where did the leftovers come from? Like, you plan, you made something yeah. at some point. If you have leftovers, like, you, I, I mean, it's is it so wildly, like, is it so out of the norm to think you might have had a plan for feeding your child today? <laughs> like, like she's just bitchy for I no reason like play all the time.
0: Like, negligent parent too much." Like, you know, she can be a a hardworking mother that doesn't have a ton of time to be putting, you know, all of Pearl's needs first without it being so heavy handed. And I do think the writing in general for all the characters, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to like references and things like that, is hitting you over the head. Whether it's, you know, the explicit, like, there are fires coming. They're going to be small, (laughs) but they're going to be everywhere. Like, it's just, uh, it's exhausting. Like, there was definitely, Mm -hmm. I keep an eye roll count when I watch this. And, you know, within the first five minutes alone, I was like, whoo. But I think you do kind of acclimate to it. And if you take it as kind of being like a heightened fiction, as opposed to a a really grounded in reality, kind of like we applied with Big Little Lies. Like, nobody's taking Big Little Lies like it's a super realistic portrayal of, of people's lives. Right. Um, caricature.
1: So, um another character I think we need to talk about is Izzy, who is straight up unstable in this show. Like she is absolutely unhinged. She's burning off her hair, which is like, what? Like, okay, go cut your hair off in the bathroom to piss your mom off. You don't burn it off. This is insane and not in well, she's the She's clearly a pyro.
2: Okay, yeah. so I know we're all supposed to pick a character that uh-huh. we identify as. And, I, I mean, Pearl is – she's awesome. We'll get to her. But there is a part of me that isn't Izzy. That's why I'm a Pearl question mark. Because – and I need to see where Izzy goes because I don't – I am not setting fire to my hair or anything. But, uh, you know, this show, and I know we're going to get into this, set in the 90s, I definitely had – uh, I was like the cross between Izzy and that older sister that she had. Lexi? Mm. Yes. Oh, you're I
0: totally was, an Izzy Lexi. I don't. Yeah. How are you even calling yourself a Pearl? What's yeah.
2: happening here? <laughs> I mean, there's a part of Pearl that I can strongly identify with, and mm. we'll get into that more. But like, there is this like Izzy Lexi. Um, you're totally you know,
0: Izzy Lexi, Carolyn. Sorry. That's what yeah.
2: you're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where I can identify because I, I sort of. I was sort of this, like, you know, popular girl, you know, wearing these, like, little clue outfits from Clueless. But also, it was like, one day I dressed like that, and then the next day I was, like, in grunge with, like, a, you know, a shirt tied around my waist. Like, I was sort of into... I saw things both sides. I saw it both ways. And I get Izzy's, like, rebellion and this, like, distaste for everything, because I... I, and, and, and I had that in me. I wasn't like burning my hair, but I definitely did some like crazy chunky blonde highlights that my mom like freaked <laughs> out over that. And then, and then went ahead and like got a pink streak too. Like I was, I, I was definitely testing the waters. You're sounding um, more like
0: Alexi now. Yeah. <laughs> chunky blonde <laughs> highlights does not rebellion make. Yeah. No, I, and no, but I know exactly what
1: you're describing because I went to p- school with plenty of girls like this who were, like, in love with Kurt Cobain but yeah. also wore platforms and, right. like, limited skirts every day. So, yes. like, I feel like that is a type in and of itself. Like, there's almost two – and I – I don't think, Izzy is not, you know, grunge, right? Because grunge was cool at some point in the 90s, and the cool kids were doing that because, Izzy is early
0: emo, and emo has never been cool.
1: No. (laughs) And she needs to get on some fucking mood stabilizers before she burns this house down. This bitch is crazy.
0: I'm (laughs) also prepared to make an argument to say that Izzy is only crazy because of her mother's, like, sheer and obvious emotional neglect of her. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like, I think yeah. that everything oh, well, Izzy is fair. doing is yeah. completely a reaction to the fact that Elena is salty, that she didn't get to go work at the bigger newspaper and therefore resents the product of that decision to the extent mm-hmm. where she, like, refuses to call her daughter by the name that she wants because it's not l or bell or bella yeah. it's like you gotta cool it lady you are driving this child and the C at the end when i want to call her madeline oh my god when elena is standing outside the door and izzy is looking at her and wants her to come in and connect with her mm-hmm. so badly and then she walks away i'm like this yeah, is an emotionally really abusive mother i'm sorry okay. i will i will call this now she's emotionally but- abusing her child
2: well, so that scene that Rebecca just mentioned, I think, mm-hmm. was the best scene in episode one. Yeah, this show is all about these like juxtapositions of these two women and their relationships with their children and lifestyles and everything. And that scene was so well done, where you have the that teen, the teen girl and mother relationship, and that juxtaposition of, you know, that reaching out, um, you know, from Mia to her daughter and what Izzy wants from her mother. I thought that was, to me, the that was the, the standout in this episode as far as direction, performance, and editing, everything.
1: I would agree. And I think to Rebecca's point, well, I don't want to get too much into book versus show here because one, Carolyn hasn't read it, and two, we're going to do a book club episode. But in the case of Izzy, I think... They make a better case in the book for everything Rebecca just said because she's still a very sympathetic character who you're just like, could you people just let up on her a little bit and stop bullying her? And, like, she there nothing she does in the book is that bad. She's not like the scene from the orchestra is not in the book the burning off of her hair is not in the book that i feel like the show is making her almost into a less sympathetic character yeah. and you're like yeah like how of course if your daughter's burning off half her hair of course you're freaked out like that's insane and they're they're just taking her character to such an extreme that i i find like i'm less able To make that, like, this is all Elena's fault
0: connection because she just seems like she needs, like, to be hospitalized. I don't think it's all Elena's fault, but I do think Mm -hmm. girls of that age, and I will speak to my own experiences here at 14, (laughs) like, it's about shock. It's like, what can you do? That is going to mm-hmm. be the single most shocking thing you can say or do. And that is a scale for people. And I think youngest children, you know, other kids have come mm-hmm. before them and done other things, feel like the bar is exceptionally high to shock. I mean, you, I, I think of that scene in Lady Bird when she jumps out of the car. Like, this, oh, is, this is a very specific. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that that character should be institutionalized. So I think it's more that, like, she is probably dealing with a lot of anxiety and, you know, some sort of maybe mm-hmm. mood disorder. But the, I think the behavior... Doesn't necessarily read to me as like as extreme. I think it, it's more like this is a pretty accurate portrayal of what a fourteen year old in their fourteen year old headspace thinks you have to do. And, and Izzy is in a especially extreme case because she is the youngest. She is definitely the black sheep of the family. The only person that she's got any sort of kindred connection with is her father, and he doesn't seem to be around very often. So you know, obviously, you mm-hmm. we can see a mile away what's going to happen with Mia. She's you know found this person that is also a black sheep that she can connect with and that's obviously something that Elena is not going to like. So, you know, that's making me, giving me anxiety just now, thinking about how that's going to get portrayed. But I have a lot of sympathy for Izzy, and I actually think the portrayal of her so far has garnered a lot of sympathy.
2: I think that young actress, first of all, both Izzy and Lexi, like, I love that they found actresses They are lost are... children
0: of Reese Witherspoon. Like, those yes. are her postman children.
2: Fucking amazing. A- amazing casting. And yeah, the casting they department are... nailed it really delivering very strong performances and Izzy especially because there has to be so much layered and she is this like very worked up character and has all this stuff going on and unlike Carrie Washington, she is not overselling it. She is mm-hmm. not uh, creating this like just sourpuss blocked off character that I am mad at or don't care about. She is engaging me to care about her her and, name uh, is yeah, Megan no, I,
0: Stott and she is very cool and you can follow her on Instagram at it's Megan Stott oh I
2: bet <laughs> but she I follows us so I
0: figured I had to plug her Aww, <laughs> oh thanks Megan
2: uh, oh hey Megan um I I think that uh her character so far for me and again having not read the book is one of the most interesting and evolved as of
0: yeah you know, you're nailing uh, it Megan we're fans yeah yeah
1: for sure so now that we're fully into the children of little fires everywhere let's talk about precious precious pearl played by lexi underwood who is a goddamn american treasure in the making like this actress is so good she is blowing like everyone out of the wild like all the adults like she is amazing and um She's also a little feistier in this show, I think, than she is in the book, which I actually really like. Like, when she yells at... When she yells at Mia, I was just like, yes, thank you. Like, don't just take this lady's shit anymore. What did you guys think of that?
0: So true. I think she is. Honestly, in the book, I know Pearl is supposed to be this virtuous, ideal teen that's curious Mm -hmm. and interesting. And she's kind of our eyes in the book in a lot of ways. But I didn't really connect with her that much. And already, Mm -hmm. just, you know, through two episodes is all I've seen so far. Holy moly, this actress is just So engaging you feel like you're sitting right there with her. She's super warm. It doesn't feel like she's acting She Mm -hmm. feels also like a teenager like she does not feel like an actress You know, I I do feel Mm -hmm. sometimes with and none of these kids really I would describe this way But I do find with teen actors a lot of times because they are casting most of the time like 22 year olds play high schoolers Mm -hmm. You are conscious of that and these kids really do feel like lived in teens They feel very authentic and Lexi Underwood for sure is just slaying this performance
2: yeah, I I think that yes, 100% she is a standout little actress and I want her to go on to so many more things and and create so many more characters because she just has a lot she has a lot to give. Um I I I think that the thing for me that like makes her such a standout actor in this is her her eyes, like mm. like mm-hmm. you said, Rebecca. Like she is like living in this, and there are moments where she is just like watching her mother, and it's not even a facial reaction; it's like an eye reaction. Yeah. she's smiling the and then some. Mm-hmm. she's smiling. She's giving you a like, whole
0: range of emotions you, with smiling. Yeah, I mean, and there's
2: like Smadness? is there a word for eye sadness? Yeah. Like eyeness? I don't. I, miss- I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, she uh, she is doing so many things that like make this character interesting and is and 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 can carry all these scenes um and i love her relationship with moody like right away i mean it's just it, you know it, it is it is so sweet it is like that true little puppy love yeah um
1: i want to know how she is not like totally in love with moody back his weird little oh, clubhouse he and his, his hot, guitar and, duh. first yeah. of all no like trip is not hotter than moody i will fight but you yeah. to the death about, about that a
2: second I, can, how, can we say that
1: because the,
0: the actor that plays moody is legit like 16 so i don't think we can say well that, yeah.
2: <laughs> also, do we, i need to talk about that the actor he's gonna get arrested movie, did he remind anyone else of a young ryan Phillippe. Yeah, oh I mean, that's totally. good
1: i was thinking justin timberlake but yeah no totally no
2: and that's it's such interesting casting to me mm-hmm. because with yeah. reese witherspoon yep. does she sit there and look at this and think like oh interesting mm-hmm. um also i mean then i know that, Ry- that reese witherspoon has a son with ryan Phillippe as well yep. a little twin clone daughter and he does look like ryan Phillippe. so i thought it was interesting that they did find kids that look like her kids for this, more mm. of this Reese Witherspoon really controlling the scenario. In but art imitating life.
1: <laughs> moody also cares about her poetry. Like,
2: yeah.
1: I would be moody like, you need theater. to go somewhere else what with your poetry. So. Um,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, and and I, I, I guess that's in the next episode where they write down the Kurt Cobain lyrics on each other's arms. Am oh I yeah, we'll ahead? get.
1: Yes, you are. We'll get yeah. there. Don't you worry.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah i i just the first episode uh it really i i like fell in love with this like sweet little moody boy
1: yeah yeah me too um and trip sucks so i don't really understand what the deal is here
2: i mean he's just your quintessential like hot high trip boy. triggers me I <laughs> reminds me of every boy yeah. at the boys' school
0: that was similar to my girls' school that wore those stupid puka shell necklaces and those Hollister t-shirts at the dances, and they just grinded all upon you and were non-consensual about it. And no, thank you. he They were me. still
1: <laughs> wearing puka shell necklaces when you were in high school. Just that's at the upsetting beginning. Just at the
0: beginning. Yeah. And it was only because okay, the OC was at like the height of popularity, and everybody was trying to like look like mm. Ryan Atwood, and it was not oh nice. It was not a good time. I feel All right, well, like...
2: Speaking of 90s references, are mm-hmm. we going to get to talk about the 90s now?
1: Sure, let's go to the 90s. Let's do some 90s spotting, as I've decided to call it. What do you I want was to talk I six years about, old Carol? in
2: 1997,
0: so my experiences with this are very much on the younger side, but I mm-hmm. found the explicit nature of this a little heavy-handed throughout. I do enjoy it. It is fun, but when you get to, like... Mm-hmm. I just feel like they're forcing in references like at one point I think Reese Witherspoon opens the fridge and she goes oh we're all out of Snapple but we've got Shasta and I'm
2: like you didn't need yeah. that line
0: <laughs> like that just takes me out of the moment it really feels artificial like they're trying to force the scene it was almost and like
2: a commercial they could have would- done
0: it and said it was 97 with the styling alone they've got the Duny and Burke bags they've got mm-hmm. the you know the matching sets in all of the living rooms and the Stonewall sort of like denim rec couch I mean it's all there with the, with the styling which I think they've done a great job with they don't need the Dialogue to constantly remind us. Soundtrack, scene, all you need. The dialogue should not be yeah. hammering at home. It's it's stressful.
2: Although I did love the kids sitting on the couch watching. Yes, real world. But mm-hmm. to me, it was the Ricky Lake cut too. Yeah.
0: Oh, see, I because- I was gonna ask you guys what show that was because I was like, is that a weird episode of Spring? Oh, like, right I was yeah. confused. When I
2: would stay home from school or during vacation time, Ricky Lake was one of my favorite go-tos also jenny jones montel all mm-hmm. of that I have never but, heard well of, um, jenny jones before.
1: didn't she end up getting someone killed like she had like a guy come on and confess that he was yeah, in love yeah, with yeah, another yeah. guy and then one guy killed thing. him jenny yeah it was terrible jones,
0: which
2: was Quick. Yeah. Yeah. can but, you
0: tell me i'm so intrigued
1: yeah it's terrible it was terrible know all the
2: details i think that's definitely a google worthy scenario mm-hmm. whenever hey. happened to jenny jones but uh ricky lake was uh Great smut television of the '90s, so that just slipping in to me was a great, um a great little period marker of this, and uh, and and the clothes in general, and the music. I I love I love '90s music. It's the music of like you know my well, t- coming of age. So everything in this, this the setup with the music in episode one. Really, really got me.
1: Well, before we get to the music, I want to talk about button fly jeans because (laughs) Mia is rocking button fly jeans all over the place. They are the worst idea anyone has ever had. It's like, let's make it harder to get in and out of your pants when you're trying to pee.
0: I remember like ripping those idea. down and like the feeling of just like each of those like metal buttons separating and like you you had to piece so badly and you're just like trying yeah. to get through it and it's you, yeah. you feel like you're ripping the pant itself. I hated them; they were awful and they took like and 15 trying to button them up. back on.
2: God, yeah. you literally—it's like getting Stiff dressed fabric. in the
0: 18th century. You got to like relace your corset. It was miserable. Yeah. It's like what being honest. Better
2: with button fly high waisted jeans than a glorious crop top. And bonus points if you had your belly button.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Um, also, speaking of. Um, also, since we talked about the real world briefly, I also want to point out that the people they show in that real world clip are Montana and Sean. Sean, who is now a goddamn senator married to another no. real world. Al- yes, he's a senator from like. Or maybe he's a congressman. I didn't look it up, but he's an elected official of the United States from like Minnesota or Wisconsin, wherever he was from. And he's married to Rachel from the San Francisco season with <laughs> with Puck and Pedro that they also okay. reference in this.
2: Well, Trace, are you about a about secret rule? Trump world is also town? our president. We're yeah. living in a world where Trump <laughs> is our president. I know. So if he, you know, if he's going to be a senator, yeah, uh, then. I think that all sounds pretty. I mean, we're also all locked into our houses.
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> and, <so>. and if <laughs> we're all in the real world now. And if now.
2: Sean is a senator from real world, like this all makes sense to me.
1: People um, are going to stop being polite and start getting well, real did you at hear, any moment.
0: There was a uh, Big Brother house in Germany that's been going on this whole time, and they just yes. like, two days ago told them what was going on. They were like, "Hey, FYI, the whole world is in lockdown right now." And they were like, "What the <laughs> <Yes>. fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> it's oh amazing. My God. I
1: was actually talking oh. to someone I work with in Germany, who was like, "We're all going to sit down and watch uh, Big Brother tonight, so we can watch them find out about coronavirus." And I was just like,
0: "Oh my god!" Germany taking culture to the next level. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, if anyone Circle, content. <laughs> if anyone watched The Circle on Netflix, yes. you're all basically living that reality now. And Love Is an Blind. Eerie... Yes, I know. Um, So it's, it's just, it's all so bizarre. Uh, the 90s really do seem like a great time of nostalgia to look back on. We could leave our houses and touch people and things and everything. And I'm also great.
0: finding it very, very difficult right now to stress watch shows that are made recently. Like, I can only watch stuff like it's set in, like, the 90s or I'm watching Mad Men right now because it's, you know, set in the 50s and the 60s. Because mm-hmm. if I watch shows that are set now, I'm like, don't don't hug them. Don't touch your face. Don't do that. I'm, like, so <laughs> anxious. I, like, can't yeah. get into it. I've been trying to watch High Fidelity well, on Hulu and I keep being like, oh, girl, don't kiss him. Like, you don't know what oh, he's got? Like I've been so stressed.
2: <laughs> well I have been uh I, I have an endorsement come for when we endorse at the end of this mm-hmm. of something that will um bring you out of the reality into an even more distorted and wacky reality. I have a Netflix show endorsement to drop on everyone.
1: All right before we get there let's talk about the song of the episode. Um I feel like I know what you guys are gonna say but Carolyn why don't you
0: start?
2: Oh hands down that fire cover of sex and candy Mm -hmm. that was at the end of the episode um it's by a band called
0: unions and it's fantastic
2: sex and candy by marcy playground was a great song this made me want to re-download that and get this cover um so that that is my song of the episode
1: rebecca what's yours
2: yeah, I mean it's out of the Counting Crows, but I, I think it's gotta yeah. be the, the
0: Sex and Candy cover is fire. It was a fire cover, and that's also just a fire song, period. And so nineties, mm-hmm. like is what it I'm is. Saying. It definitely. I hope we get some Hanson. That's what I'm really holding out for. Uh, some well,
2: bop. <laughs> I, want a I, um, I want
0: deep cut Hanson.
2: Oh God.
1: Good Lord, who would even know what that sounds like? Um, no one. That's the point. S- Speaking of deep cuts, though, like I noticed my song is um, Mia listening to The Far Side passing me by on her on her Walkman. Mm. And but I was kind of like, I feel like Mia would have been listening to a deep cut, not like the hit off the album. She would have been like, oh, no, I got to skip this because um, I'm too cool. I don't to think listen the writers the are
0: thinking about that.
1: No, I, also I don't feel think like so
2: Mia is kind of I I I don't know. Like, I feel like. Again, Deep cuss, but also isn't she kind of like an Amy man? Uh <laughs> to, to, I, I, yeah. I I kind mm-hmm. of think like she's like that like girl rock like Lilith Fair vibe.
1: Well, I mean, I was a girl rock Lilith Fair vibe, but I was also like into hip hop, especially like She would be the...
2: listening to Tori Amos. Well,
1: we're we're going to talk about this later because I have a problem with some music choices for Izzy later on in a different episode, so let's get to Tori Amos later. But OK, fair. Um, but like like I definitely would have been listening to Tori Amos in 1997, but I also would have been listening to the far side like like, um, you know, any kind of conscious hip hop went along with me for angry lesbians screaming into a microphone at the little fair. Those that was like <laughs> my jam, those things. So so I get that that tracks for me.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like in the 90s, I, I loved it all. I mm-hmm. was taking in everything from, you know, Biggie and Tupac and so. 90s like,
0: Hipcock is iconic, though. I mean, like, yeah, you know, exactly. the best like, thing have to have come to out of the 90s. Yeah.
2: And, like, Aaliyah, and then, but also, like, Tori Amos, but also Nirvana. I mean, I just was, like, consuming it all. The 90s, I just felt like you didn't have to be committed to just one style. Like, I... You, I Sorry, no, like you
1: sorry, you didn't. And but, however, like, you know, Brian is a couple years older than me, and therefore even more nineties. That because Carolyn, we we should also disclose this for listeners. Listeners, Carolyn and I are the same age. We both graduated high school in nineteen ninety nine. So we are literally like pearls age, I guess, at this time, right?
2: And yeah, it would appear so.
1: We probably would have been like sophomores. Yeah. But Rebecca, you were 10 years younger than us.
2: Yeah, I graduated
0: 2009.
1: Yeah, so like you were a child. But Brian yeah. is 3 years older than me, so okay. he would have been I think he graduated high school in 1997 actually. So like and he was a total izzy. So I so I said to him so like um so like he he was even You know, like, he was definitely a Nirvana, like the lemon heads come up so much around here it's not even funny like every time some song that doesn't make sense comes on I'm like is that the lemon heads and he's like yes you know like whiny, <laughs> du- whiny dude music was his jam and like all of his friends jams right like they're obsessed with Morrissey and I'm like I'm gonna kill myself if you even turn that <laughs> on and like, like so I could like whiny dudes from the 90s like even Nirvana I had trouble with like I didn't really get into Pearl Jam back then like I wanted angry women and angry hip Pop. Like, I had, I did not want anyone who was crying about some shit. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like,
1: (laughs) smash the (laughs) picture of a young Teresa. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: So, just like how I was both like an Izzy and Lexi with clothes and everything, I was kind of like that. I was like all over the map with like one minute I wanted like some moody, you know, Fiona Apple to listen to in my bedroom and like cry. And then the next minute I wanted to be like, rocking out to, like, hip-hop, or maybe I wanted to just drive around listening to Pearl Jam with my friends. I mean, I really feel like I kind of, there was a lot of stuff, and then also, like, yeah, let's just have a dance party to Spice Girls, you know? You know, I also think you
1: brought up, Rebecca, you brought up um, Lady Bird earlier, and Carolyn, did we both talk about that on the nose together? Um, I, no, no. No, okay, so I, I was on the, the nose. I
2: didn't see that, which means that I was not on the nose for it. You didn't see Lady okay. Bird? I know. <laughs> well, what is we'll wrong deal. with you? You're an actress. Uh,
1: well, well if, if, a lot,
2: I know. But, and if you're uh, feeling,
1: like, 90s nostalgia, you need to watch Lady Bird. Because much like I reacted she very... In it. Yes, and it. Yes. I know. At, like, I reacted poorly to lady bird what's her actual name in that movie i don't know see whatever character. yeah but i don't know what her real name is in that like she insists people oh. call her Ladybird, but i don't remember what her name is yeah,
0: because that's her um, name now it's Ladybird.
1: but like i i thought she was so annoying and i i was just like i hate you so that's much the but
0: of the movie she's so annoying. yes
1: I know, but the thing that really made me like the movie was how well it got the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like, in a way that I'm not sure this show quite gets, but, you know, she's like, she's working in the coffee shop and they're playing Ani DeFranco in the background, and I was like, yes, like, every time you walked into a coffee shop in 1997, like, Ani DeFranco was screaming about her vagina somewhere, and then, (laughs) like... And then, you know, she's in a car with a friend, and they're playing DMB in the background. And I'm like, oh, my God, yes. Like, every time you left the house, someone forced Dave Matthews
0: on you, whether you liked I it or not. hate Dave Matthews. <laughs> I know. Yeah, Dave Matthews can suck
2: it. That's <laughs> yeah. one part of the 90s. You
0: know what? This is becoming a very popular opinion. I feel like they're going to be the next Nickelback. I was talking to somebody in the industry the other day, and she was just like, mm-hmm. literally everybody feels this way about Dave Matthews. I'm like, it feels like it was yeah. for so long the other way. that It was such a, like niche opinion to say that dave matthews sucked and it was a good one to have because people would be like what dave matthews my king and you'd be like yeah he sucks and people would freak out i think it
1: is still a niche opinion we're just in the niche right we're in the wnpr like artist bubble and um, I said WNPR as though everyone else knows what that is. I should have just said yeah. NPR. We're in the NPR bubble. We're all artists. We all hang around with other artists who were terrorized by Dave Matthews Band fans in it's
0: high school. True. Right? We're but, all just salty but... about the Dave Matthews Band. It's a yeah, Dave can't... Matthews Band support group. That's like, all the I, is. <laughs> <laughs> like I,
1: I don't even really hate the music that much because some of it, like you can kind of get like if you're just sitting around drinking beer by the water, like yeah, what's wrong with Dave Matthews Band? Really, nothing. It's just that every drunken asshole trip Richardson that I went to high school with <laughs> loved Triggered them Richardson. so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trigger Richardson. That's a good name. Be- like. They were getting so drunk guys, and peeing on people at concerts ugh, like it was a nightmare. Day of like, I hated all of them.
0: Those were the worst. Does anybody know that Trip is typically for triple? Like it's, it's a nickname for the third? Yes,
1: I've heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I
0: had a girl in high school who was from Abilene, Texas, and she had a brother whose name was Trip Dickey. And Ew. I was no. like, "Your mother named your son Trip Dicky," and she's like, "Oh, oh no, think, it's just because he's oh. the triple. He's the
2: Trip Dicky." And we'd be
0: like, "Claire, please stop." So, trip if you're Dickey out there, Claire Dicky, I miss collar you. Collar
2: of his polo shirt popped up.
0: I never saw him <laughs> oh, in the oh flesh, God. but I knew his top. name was Trip Dicky, and that was enough for me.
1: I also feel like something that doesn't quite track with me about Trip is that um, if he were in my high school, he definitely would have been wearing a college hat. Um, you know, like a basic hat that just had the, the letter, like UVM yeah. or UConn or UMass or whatever the college that they were probably never going to go to w- was.
0: Like, yeah, we got to talk about college too. This is a big topic. But that's about, for the next episode. Yeah. About like the role of like college and I college acceptance and all of that and what that – I mean that mm-hmm. became – the whole idea of like college acceptance I think really – emerged in like that late 90s early 2000s when people started Mm -hmm. really like marketing college prep and I remember that book The Gatekeepers came out that was all about like exposing the college admissions process and people started trying to like game the system and write the perfect college essay like this becomes like a theme in and of itself in this series Mm -hmm. and I remember like I think that's where honestly the origin of my long-term anxiety comes from. It's just like that <laughs> feeling of college anxiety and like having to like hit all these land these goals and it was very structured and you had to feel like you gamed a bunch of systems and you had to be special. One of my very close friends in high school wrote her college essay titled, I'm Not That Special, and she literally just wrote an entire essay being like, I didn't get cancer when I was six, my parents are (laughs) happily married, I don't play three varsity sports, like, my grades are decent, and she got into, like, every college she applied to. It was great.
2: So, yeah, I I definitely remember the big boom I went I grew up in a suburb of Boston I grew up in Newton Massachusetts Uh, went to high school there and it is an incredibly uh, wealthy and high-powered community that you know is reminiscent of of this Shaker Heights place in some ways like that Um, and there, my high school I think from my graduating class there were 12 kids who went to Harvard five who went to Yale um, the unfortunate ones had to go to Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, Dad, it was that's so yeah. shady. <laughs> I know, I know. But that was like how everyone talked. It was like, are you crazy? Uh, it was really, I can remember, and it was like going to Trinity was like your safety school. Um, so I can remember that pressure with these like college essays. And I had this English teacher my senior year of high school who was such a dick. His name was Dr. Weiner, but it spelled like Weiner. And he... Like, we had to... He wanted to make our college essay, like, for your applications. It was an assignment that he wanted us to, like, turn into him. And I refused to do it because I was like, this is a personal essay that you have nothing to do with. And I will not submit this to you. Mm -hmm. And he threatened to fail me. And obviously, like that you know shit had to go down because I was not going to fail English Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to get like a guidance counselor and the department head involved because I just felt like that was so violating to have to to share your personal essay with him and potentially the class because he was doing a peer editing thing and I was like suck my cock Dr. I w- Weiner.
1: I would have been more <laughs> passive aggressive about it and just like turned in a fake essay and then went and did whatever. Who I had time to, to write
2: like- a fake essay? <laughs>
1: oh, I can I can shit out an essay in like 40 minutes. It's no big deal. But <laughs> it's what I do for a living. I just crap words everywhere all day long.
2: No. Uh, I was lucky <laughs> if I was doing the bare minimum. He was not getting extra work out of me. Um I was I, I was too busy, you know, <laughs> doing whatever else you should be doing in high school like having <laughs> fun listening to you know Nirvana driving around in your car with your mm-hmm. friends I don't know I was busy and I was not going to do extra work just for him but um
1: that- well we have gone completely off the rails now we have thoroughly trashed DMB and um Trip Dicky and Mr. Mm-hmm. Weiner so I think this is a good time for us all to replenish our wine supplies or and, not. <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah And come back for um, episode two. Episode two. All right. See you guys in a little while.